If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, Feeling a little bored? Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Why is Brittany called Brittany? What exactly is or was a Celt? Did King Arthur have a home in a mystical forest near Wren? Well, Professor Sir Barry Cunliffe is the author of a new book, Bretons and Britons, the fight for identity. And in today's podcast, he answers these questions and more about the history of Brittany. Putting the questions to him was our content director, David Musgrove. Today, I'm joined by Professor Sir Barry Cunliffe, uh, Emeritus Professor of European Archaeology at the University of Oxford. He's excavated widely over many years and is undoubtedly one of our greatest archaeological experts. His latest book is Bretons and Britons, The Fight for Identity, which is published now by Oxford University Press. And as the title suggests, it's a history of Brittany, Bretons and their relationship with Britain. So, Barry, thank you very much for joining us. Um, The first thing we need to do is is orientate ourselves. So, might you be able to just quickly remind our listeners of the general geography we're talking about here? Where does Brittany sit in relation to Britain? What's its general extent and and what sort of landscape features are made up in, in the Breton Peninsula? 
Okay, well, uh, let's start with um, being out in the Atlantic. Assume we're uh, out in the Atlantic and we're looking towards Europe, we're looking east towards Europe, and we're approaching Europe and we're approaching Brittany. Um, on our right-hand side, we'll go past Galicia in northwestern Spain. On our left-hand side, we'll go past Ireland. And as we sort of home in into Europe, uh, there in the centre is the peninsula of Brittany. Uh, it's uh, a long peninsula, something like uh, 250 kilometres long. So it juts out from the northwest corner of France. In relation to Britain, uh, it runs parallel, the Breton Peninsula runs parallel with the southwest of Britain, that is, with uh, Dorset, Devon, Cornwall. And the two are something like four or five hundred kilometres apart. So there's just the sea between them, and the sea doesn't divide. The sea actually connects southern Britain, southwestern Britain, to this peninsula of Brittany. Now, it, it's quite, quite a complicated peninsula. It's old hard rock, and um, it's... Uh, really divided into three parts, if you, if you think of it this way. There is the, the great central spine, which is forest and uh, mountains. They, they call them mountains in France, but in Brittany, but uh, they're not really mountains. They're sort of hills, uh, Montagnoir and uh, Mondaret. And then um, you've got beyond, outside this, this core, um, there is what is called the Argot. That is the, um, the land facing the forest, and outside that again is the Amor, which is the land facing the sea. So essentially you've got this outer line of land facing the sea, and then you go inland and there is the Argat, and then inside is this great spine of mountains and, and forest. So what that really means is that the northern coast of Brittany, which faces Britain, uh, is quite separate from the southern coast of Brittany, which faces across the Bay of Biscay to northern Spain. So um, Brittany really has got those two, two main faces. Uh, it's also got a third face. It's face with France, uh, the mainland France. Uh, it joins France, obviously, so it's got a land border. But um, very important is the River Loire, which runs from the Bay of Biscay uh, in the southeast corner of Brittany, um, deep into um, West Central Europe, deep into France, and over quite close to the German border, in fact. So um, Brittany has got these um, contact zones, one north to Britain, one south to Iberia, and one uh, east into West Central Europe. And you mentioned uh, the Armor, this coastal zone. That's where mm -hmm. the, the, the word Armorica uh, comes from, I presume. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, we call it Brittany now, and, and I'll no doubt fall into the fa uh, fault of calling it Brittany when I'm talking about prehistory. Um, but it only becomes Brittany as a country when the Britons uh, actually move into Brittany. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about that later, sometime in the 5th and 6th century AD. And before that, it's called Armorica. And the Romans knew it as Armorica. And uh, since Ar and Mor are both Celtic words, uh, presumably the inhabitants of the Breton Peninsula, Armorica called themselves Armoricans uh, in the pre-Roman period. Right. Now, uh, 
your book, which is a brilliant read, takes us from prehistory up to the present day. Um, obviously, we, we can't hope to cover everything in the book or all that entire time span. So uh, what I want to do is try and focus on the links between Brittany and Britain, if we can. Um, and we're going to sort of start with prehistory and, and move forwards, and we'll get into the medieval period. We probably won't get too much further than that, but we'll see how we go with mm-hmm. our time. So when can we see the first possible evidence of cross-channel communication between Brittany and Britain? Well, I think we need to go back to a stage just before when we can first see it. Go back to the Mesolithic period, that's the hunter-gatherer period, when both in Britain and in Armorica, um, people were um, hunting their food, they were collecting their food, they were foragers and so on, before farming comes in. Um, we're talking about um, 7,000, 8,000, 7,000, 6,000 BC, that sort of period. Now, during that time, I think we can be pretty sure um, that people in both Britain and in Armorica learned how to use the sea. The sea was important to them. They were foraging generally. Um, they were moving with their food. They were m- moving to collect um, food from um, grazing animals and so, and so on, um, moving into the forest to um, pick nuts and berries and fungi. Um, they, they were mobile. Uh, they could com- They could navigate. They could go from camp to camp and come back again. So they understood navigation. And almost certainly they understood navigation at sea. They would have had hide boats made of skins uh, um, sewn onto wickerwork frameworks, that sort of thing. And um, the sea was as much, for the, the ones who lived around the coast, the sea was as much a part of their hunting grounds as the land was. Um, and they would follow, as on land they followed um, herds of, of animals, on sea they followed the, the fish, the shoals of fish. And in that way, um, I imagine these um, hunter-gatherers from Armorica and Britain came into contact. Um, and uh, it, it's we've got no hard evidence for this, but there is no reason why they didn't. And um, when we just move on a little bit, by, the, this t- uh, by sort of 5000 BC, um, Armorica has got farmers moving into it, so domesticated animals. And then suddenly in Ireland, at about this time, on Mesolithic hunting sites, we find um, uh, cattle, domesticated cattle, or rather bits of domesticated cattle. Now, that, that is long before farmers got to Ireland. And the only way they could have got this, these bits of domesticated cattle was by um, people bringing them from Armorica from overseas. So we must assume that um, somewhere about 5,000, 5,000 soon after, uh, the, the um, uh, hunter-gatherers who were just beginning to be farmers in Armorica were making their traditional sailings up into the Irish Sea and around the British coast. Um, and they were bringing gifts with them, probably gifts of sides of beef or something like that. And that's how these bones got into the Mesolithic sites in Ireland. So that's the first we can actually see of the contact. And what it reminds us, and this is very important for what comes afterwards, is um, if you think of Britain, um, Britain uh, has an east side story and a west side story. The east side story of Britain links across the North Sea and the eastern part of the Channel to um, northern France and um, uh, Belgium and Holland, that sort of area, the Low Countries. The west side story 
uh, links Ireland, Western Brittany, Wales, Cornwall, with the whole of the Atlantic seaways, which includes Brittany and also includes um, Spain um, and Portugal at this stage. So that West Side story is really the story that links Armorica uh, with Britain. It's that part of that great connectivity which flows through history. Fantastic. An East Side story and a West Side story. I like it. Um, so, so we talked about the Mesolithic there. That's the hunter-gatherer period. And in terms of archaeological nomenclature, you're moving into the Neolithic period, which is the, mm. which is the farming period. So just for everyone to, to be reminded of that. Now, I'm just wondering, um, during this period, was, was the sea conditions the same as, as we have now? I, we know that sea, travel, sea level uh, has, has risen and fallen uh, during the past. Mm. And at one point, there was a land bridge between Britain and Europe, mm. but that wouldn't have been... That wouldn't have been in this area, would it? No, no. Um, by the time we're talking about now the Mesolithic period and the, and the Neolithic period, um, Britain is very much an island. Um, and um, the only way to get there is by sea. Uh, and similarly, Ireland was separated from, from the rest of the British Isles. Um, but um, the, 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 the sea level was continuing to rise during this period, but the rise was getting slower and slower and slower. So um, in the Mesolithic period, there would have been a little bit more land uh, around the edge, but not very much more. So it's, it's as near as makes no difference the same. Okay. Now, now in your book, you, you, you talk about the suggestion that there may have been some actual migration from mm. Armorica to Western mm. Britain and Ireland, uh, sort of around about the, the early 5th millennium. So uh, I think your data were 4,300 to 3,900 BC. You, you, you see some sense of a, of a migration. Can you tell us a bit more about that and what that tells us about the sort of cultural contact and similarities between mm. the two areas? Yeah, well, we, we've got this this idea that even in the uh, period about 5000 BC, um, trips were being made from Armorica into the Irish Sea area um, when before the Britons had um, become farmers. Um, after farming had penetrated um, the Armorican Peninsula, Brittany, um, it was coming from two directions. It was coming, uh, f um, farming techniques were coming up from the south, from uh, the west coast of France, and they were coming overland from the Seine um, Valley region. And um, uh, so you've got farmers moving in, into Brittany in, in, in two ways. And they establish uh, a farming community in Brittany, um, certainly by, by 5000 BC. Now, um, what we see in the archaeological record is very soon after, well, soon after this, 4, 000, by 4,300 over the next couple of hundred years, um, we see a contact, the same contact from Armorica um, around the southwest of Britain into the Irish Sea area. And this is shown by uh, the uh, distribution in um, southern, southwest Wales, north West Wales, um, the east coast of Ireland and the west coast of, of Scotland of a, a certain tomb type, um, a, a tomb um, built of um, stone blocks making a kist for the body to be buried in and set in a, a simple stone curb. Nothing like it before, but very much like what was being built in southern Brittany at that stage. And um, uh, also in this tomb type, we see um, the beginnings of what is called a passage grave, where instead of being completely contained, this central kist where the body is buried has a little uh, passage leading to it, so you can get in and 
put libations with with your dead ancestor or bury another ancestor with them. And this passage tomb technique is one that develops in Brittany. So it's the distribution of these tombs, the West Side story, which we're talking about, the distribution of these tombs all up the Irish Sea um, that links into southern Brittany. And um, there are similar pots being found as well. The pots like those being made in southern Brittany are being found at certain points along the sea route. So that's that's one of the first contacts, probably going back to 4,300, 4,200, before the Neolithic really got into Britain from the east side. And how confident can you be that uh, that, that, that direction of cultural contact is going from Armorica through the, through to the west of Britain <laughs> and not the other way? I presume yep. you've got dating evidence to support uh, that. Yeah, yeah. so there are radiocarbon dates, reasonable radiocarbon dates, and they're earlier in Brittany than the earliest ones we've got in Britain so far. Okay. Now, you've, you've introduced us to, to my next question, which is one of the things that uh, that many listeners might associate with Brittany if they've been on holiday there uh, is its is its fantastic prehistoric megalithic remains, so stone mm. remains. Uh, particularly, I'm thinking Stone Rose, the, the most obvious one is, is Karnak on the south coast, this amazing uh, 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 stone alignment that goes on for, 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 for an incredible uh, distance and burial chains as well, which you talked about. Can you give us just a bit more of a taste of that mm. and, and tell us if, if the, the, mm. there's a tradition that goes across the two, uh, the two parts of, of uh, land that we're talking about here? Yeah, um, what, what you get in, in Brittany from, um, in the Mesolithic period, before the Neolithic come in, you get some of these little stone-built tombs, um, stone kists, and um, Mesolithic hunters are being buried in them. So there is a tradition of burying people in stone kists. There's also a tradition of building long mounds, uh, sometimes covering these kists. And uh, another tradition that begins, possibly back in the Mesolithic period in Brittany, is the idea of standing stones in rows. The, the earliest ones, or the ones that look the earliest, are really very, very simple indeed, just local boulders that are just erected in, in a row. Um, by the time you move on a bit, it gets more and more and more sophisticated until we get to, um, in, in, in the fifth millennium, the, the wonderful uh, structures like um, there is a famous site at Loch Mariacare, which is on the southern side of Brittany, um, and um, there, there was a, a huge standing stone erected there called the Grand Menhir, Grand Menhir Brise, it's called, because it's fallen down and broken, so it's Brise. Um, but uh, when it was standing, this great stone, the stone itself would have been 21 metres long and allowing for a bit in the ground, it must have stood something like 18 metres high, that's roughly a three-storey house. No, it was a big stone. Um, and the effort of putting that stone, bringing it from a quarry many kilometres away, putting it up, standing it there, and then carving it with um, horned, uh, um, probably cattle, uh, and a, a curious feature, a creature, which um, some people identify as a whale, and it may well be. But you put up this great stone and you carve it, and then you put uh, um, 18 other stones behind it, all carved. Now, that is very sophisticated. Um, it grows out of the Breton tradition, the Armorican tradition. It's not introduced from anywhere. Um, and um, 
then from that, of course, you get slightly later these great stone rows uh, that you find at Karnak, where there are um, rows and rows and rows of stones, sort of up to 10 rows of stones going for kilometres across the countryside. M- amazing monuments. Um, so that's one side of the Meso- uh, megalithic tradition. Uh, the other side is the burial tradition, where um, it grows out of this idea of the kist, putting bodies in the kist, and then the idea of creating a passageway leading to it so that you can um, add additional burials. Um, uh, so, and we call them passage graves. Uh, they develop um, quite widely in Europe. They're known in Spain, they're known in uh, Brittany, they're known in Ireland and Britain and up into Orkney and Shetland and across into France. Um, and someone has recently done a, a very, very detailed study of all the radiocarbon dates from these graves, and they reckon that they probably did originate in Brittany, in the Morbihan, in this uh, southern part of Brittany, where they are at their best and where all these stone rows are. And the idea is that they originated there and they spread from there um, northwards uh, along the Irish Sea in, into Western Britain and south uh, across to Galicia and down the coast of Iberia. So I was, I was about to fly us forward to, to the pre-Roman Iron Age, but, uh, but we can't overlook the Bronze Age. So uh, that's, the, that's the period of metalwork. So, so very briefly, tell us what, uh, what's the story in the Bronze Age. Well, the, the story again is this West Side story. Um, we've got people going backwards and forwards um, acro- across the sea from Brittany, uh, Wales, Ireland, and, and Scotland, and so on. Um, the, the crucial bit here is that when copper metallurgy starts, it starts sometime in the th- early third millennium in Portugal. There are prospectors coming out from Portugal. They come to Brittany, and those prospectors move on along the seaways in, into certainly in Ireland, where we find them about 2400 BC, and so develops um, in southern Ireland, South Wales, Brit- um, Cornwall and Devon and Armorica, a very special um, uh, metal-using economy. Um, it starts off u- uh, as a copper-using economy, but it, it's there that bronze develops for the first time in Western Europe. And it develops there because um, it's in those areas in Brittany and southwest Britain that there is tin. And um, uh, th- this, this is absolutely the driver for increasing contact and increasing continuity. The rarity of tin, the the comparative rarity of gold, which you get from Cornwall and and, uh, Southern Ireland, and also the comparative rarity of of copper. And that little area is bound together by the sea. It's a metal-rich area, and it's an area of incredible innovation. And um, once that's underway, uh, then develops what, what is called the Atlantic Bronze Age, which links that nucleus with the Spanish nucleus and so you get this great continuity of of ideas and metalwork and technology stretching from Spain right the way up to Shetland. So you've got you're describing there a very connected west side metallurgical story. Does that is that at odds with something that would be east side story in Britain? Is that is something different going on there? Um, well, y- y- yes, to the extent that it doesn't have metal. Um, and it's the metal the, um, that is the driver for the intensity of the contact. You're, you're getting contact uh, across the North Sea as well um, at the same time in parallel with it. So people coming across the North Sea, um, beaker people coming across the North Sea and so on. 
um, but um, and um, contacts develop across the North Sea in parallel with this. Uh, but it's the metal is the real driver for the the intensity along the Atlantic seaways. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. When the Doomsday was written um, in uh, the end of the 11th century, um, one-fifth of the land of Britain was owned by Bretons. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Right, moving forward in time then to, to the to the pre-Roman Iron Age. So that's that's uh, we've we've gone forward in time from the Bronze Age. Uh, have we still got a, a very connected West Side society? How much interaction was going on? And I, I wonder, was Brittany um, in any way closer to Britain in terms of culture and society then than uh, than it was to France, to what was to become France to the east? Um, what what really happens is um, with the the Iron Age, as the name implies, uh, a new metal sort of creeps in, uh, and it's found just about everywhere. And it tends to knock the bottom out of the copper market and the tin market. So the um, what what we see in the West is a sort of breakdown of this great Atlantic Bronze Age system, uh, and much more regionalisation. And Britain and Brittany begin now to develop their own sort of regional cultures, um, really quite separate. Uh, they're not absolutely separate because there's plenty of evidence of contact between them. But um, um, Brittany very much looks in on itself and it, it develops a, a wonderful Iron Age culture with these souterrains, which are underground storage 
uh, units for, for corn and dried meat and things like that. Um, it develops steely, it's, um, out of the tradition of the standing stone. Um, the, the tradition continues, but in the Iron Age, they are beautifully carved and, and sometimes decorated. Um, and it develops its own very distinct um, uh, pottery, uh, decorated pottery. But there are links with Britain, but it's, it's very much an isolated um, culture and very different from the rest of France. Um, if anything, it, it is closer to southwest Britain than it is to uh, its neighbouring part of France. In Cornwall, you do get souterrains, don't you? The foggoos that they would be, they would that, be called. That's right. You get the same idea of of um, putting your seed corn and probably your other valuables that you need to keep cold and at an even temperature, putting them under the ground. They're called foggoos in uh, or fugus uh, in Cornwall um, and souterrain uh, in in um, in Brittany. Um, and you still you do get decorated pottery of of a slightly similar kind. And we know that there are links between them because um, there are bronze bowls which are being traded um, I think between Brittany although none have been found in Brittany but what you've got in Brittany are um, pottery copies of these bronze bowls um, and you find the bronze bowls in um, Devon and in Ireland and so on. So, so there, there is evidence of contact still, but um, uh, still maintaining this Western link, but uh, now slightly more separate and um, going their own way and developing their own very distinct regional cultures. And uh, sorry to all our Cornish listeners for my mispronunciation of Fugu. <laughs> my, my mother will be furious with me because I have Cornish ancestry. But uh, <laughs> anyway, there we are. Live and learn. Um, so, uh, what what um, what does the uh, arrival of Rome do to the story? How does it change the situation in both Brittany and Britain? Because the the Roman experience is different on either side of the channel, I guess. Mm. Yeah, um, there, there, there is, an, in fact, a, an early bow wave effect of Romanization. Uh, when the Romans move into southern uh, France, into Provence, uh, which they do 120 BC, that sort of period, um, they develop a wine, a wine trade um, and offload a lot of their cheap old Italian wine uh, on the poor unsuspecting Celts living in southern France and make a big profit out of it. They, they really do make, make a profit out of it. They charge a denarius on every uh, amphora of wine that goes from one town to another. It's a big profit. Um, anyway, this, this wine then sort of pervades the whole of the, 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 the artery system uh, of uh, France uh, and, and Armorica and across to Britain. And what we find is that but, um, wine am Roman wine amphorae. From, this is between the periods, say, about 120 BC to about 50 BC. Um, these Roman wine amphorae pass um, from the Mediterranean across uh, the river system in, into the sort of Bordeaux area, and then by ship up to Brittany, uh, probably across the Breton Peninsula rather than around it, to ports like Saint-Malo, uh, which was, um, there was a, an Iron Age site there. Uh, and then they are traded from there across the sea to, to Britain, particularly to Hengisbury Head, which is uh, on the coast uh, not far from Poole Harbour. And um, I, I excavated there and we found these Roman amphorae there. We also found figs 
or rather fig seeds, and, and glass. And so these are Mediterranean luxuries which are, are suddenly flowing into the, the trading system. And what we see um, in the period from about 100 to about 50 BC is this very tight link between Saint-Malo, or the Saint-Malo-Saint-Brieu area, the north, north coast of Brittany, um, and uh, Hengisbury Head and Pool Harbour, and uh, boats going backwards and forwards for many, many years. And I think the model that um, probably fits best is of a sort of summer camp of Bretons at Hengisbury Head, that they, they load up their ships in, in, France, in Brittany with uh, masses of amphorae and stuff a few figs in and bags of glass and stuff like that um, and take it off to Hengisbury and then stay there for the trading season. And what comes out of Britain are hides, slaves, corn and metals. And uh, so you can imagine people bringing those things in, from Britain to Hengisbury Head. And there are the Breton traders uh, trading um, and swapping their amphorae of wine uh, for slaves and so on, and then going back to Brittany. And this is before the Romans have got to Brittany. But, uh, so it's, it's trade in advance of Romanization. And then, of course, in um, the 50s, um, 50, uh, 756 BC, um, Caesar is active in this area. Caesar um, moves into Gaul um, and uh, moves very quickly across Gaul. One of the first things he does is to try and buy off all the tribes in the northwest, the whole of the Armorican tribes and the tribes along the channel. He sort of does a deal and thinks that's it. Um, and then settles down, and, and well, it goes home, in fact, and just leaves his troops there. And the locals think, hey, we, this is not a good place to be, um, and let's kick these Romans out and uh, object. So there is a, a Breton revolution against the presence of Caesar's troops. And the next year, I mean, it's very serious, Caesar comes back, um, he builds a fleet uh, in, um, well, uh, just off the mouth of the Loire, in fact, he gets some local ships, uh, moves his army up and so on. And then when he's all poised, land troops, uh, maritime troops, he moves in on Brittany with a vengeance and, and uh, destroys the Breton resistance and um, does the usual sort of thing of killing off all their headmen and uh, taking the rest as slaves and so on. So um, that's how Brittany uh, um, sort of meets the Romans in, in a sort of head-on collision. And that is, of course, 90 years before the Romans actually move into Britain. So Britain is still Iron Age and free from Rome uh, when Brittany is taken over. And what Caesar does is to stop this trade immediately with Britain. Um, he doesn't like the, uh, the uh, Armoricans um, liaising with Britain because they were getting re reinforcements from Britain. So he seems to cut that trade and the trade starts in a different direction. Uh, well, across the channel, in fact, it continues across the English Channel um, between sort of Dover and, and Kent, that sort of or Dover and Essex. Um, so um, uh, it brings to an end um, this contact. And then gradually, it takes quite a long while for Brittany to settle down. It, it had a very rough time under Caesar. And there are one or two hints of rebellions going on for the next 20, 30, 40 years. Um, but then it quietens down and um, Romanization sets in and it, it gets the usual towns and road systems and so on. So, so Brittany did did eventually become part of Roman Gaul. It was a, a, a part of that province. 
Yeah, from about um, the 20s BC, um, after, after the horror of, of the, the con- Caesar's conquest had died down and, and um, people began gradually to see the benefits of Romanization. Uh, um, Brittany was as Romanized as the rest of Gaul and as Romanized as Britain itself became um, when, when um, Claudius invaded mm. in 43. And um, so you have this, this system of roads, you have um, big towns developing, um, have industries developing, and uh, some of the Bretons, the, the elite uh, uh, Bretons become um, become Roman citizens and, and administrators and so on. It's a, a, a normal Roman package of, of Romanization. And you, you go into some detail about the sort of the brutality of those Gallic wars in the book. It's, mm-hmm. it's very interesting. I wonder, is there any evidence of, of Breton Armorican emigres going to Britain at that point when they when the, when the Romans were, were, were being so brutal? Can we see mm-hmm. that? There, there are hints of this. There are hints of people getting out. Um, one of the hints is, is um, uh, on the island of Jersey, where there are um, a lot of um, coin hoards of Breton coins. Of, uh, Armor- I, must, I must call them Armorican. Armorican coins, um, which suggests that people might be fleeing to the offshore islands. And, and we do find some of these coins um, appearing in Britain as well. But it's very difficult to see any major culture change in Britain at this time. It doesn't, say, doesn't mean to say there weren't refugees pouring in. It's just that they weren't recognisable in the archaeological record. Okay, so so the, the the place you mentioned there, the, the Channel Islands, so that's between Britain and, and Brittany in the yes. uh, across the stretch of uh, water there. Um, so, what happens after the the Roman interlude then? So, both sides mm. of the Channel both get Romanized, as you said, uh, Britain mm. somewhat after Brittany, but but nevertheless both Romanized. Um, is this the point when we finally start to see a flow of people from? Britain to Brittany because it does seem that throughout the broad span of prehistory we've talked about quite a lot of the story has been sort of flowing north and west from Brittany. Yeah yeah what what, what happens is at the end of the Roman period well towards um, the end of the third century so we're still well within the Roman period um, there are raids coming from north of the north of the Roman frontier and um, particularly raids by sea and uh, those raids spread into the the channel, and uh, Brittany is part of this area that is um, dragged into um, uh, putting up defences against raiders from the sea. Um, but the other thing that happens in Brittany, which is extremely interesting and is, is referred to by a number of texts, is that the Britons begin to revolt. Um, they um, they're called rusticani, you know, the the country dwellers, the rustic people, um, those who are not part of the urban elite. So we've got countryside versus urban elite, I think. And um, the first rebellion we get is in the late third century, and then into the fourth century there are more rebellions. So you're getting um, a Breton resistance movement developing among the countryside dwellers. And um, uh, as this goes on, um, the, the rest of the Roman Empire is beginning to crumble and barbarians are moving in, um, the, uh, uh, the Franks are moving in, the Huns move in, the Alans move in and so on. And um, uh, towards the end, we're, we're, when we're getting into the, into the 5th century, just the beginning of the 5th century, um, the 
um, Romans are using the barbarians, using Huns, using Alans to fight the Britons, Bretons, to fight these um, uh, rebelling Rusticani, the, these um, these rebels, the Gordi, they're called. Um, so, so you've got a, a peasant revolt basically, um, and then <clears throat> and then in into that peasant revolt come the, the Britons. What is happening at this stage is that the Saxons are moving into the British Isles, and that is um, pushing uh, some of the, the British further and further west. And Gildas, um, uh, one of the near-contemporary sources, talks about this um, uh, in rather sort of um, glowing terms, uh, rather over-egged. Um, but uh, essentially, he, he, he says that um, people are getting on their boats in Britain and sailing away to Brittany. Um, he doesn't say to Brittany, but sailing away. And um, th that's, in, in fact, what happens. Refugees from the west of Britain, um, probably from Dorset, Devon, Cornwall, that sort of area, possibly from South Wales, um, get, get on boats and sail to Brittany because that's the, their, their traditional links are with the Bretons. They've probably got relations over there anyway. Um, uh, you know, it's it's not sudden invasion of foreigners. There 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 are, there are familial links, um, so they're they're getting out of the way of the Saxons and moving into this Armorican Peninsula, and then we can we can recognise them because um, they take with them a particular form of Celtic called Britonic, which is rather different from the kind of Celtic that was being spoken in Armorica at that stage. And um, uh, from place names, uh, place names like Plu and Loch um, and Tre and Ker, um, um, these place names suddenly start to appear and they appear in northern and western Brittany. Um, and from that, that stage onwards, we are now correct in calling it Brittany uh, because the Britons have moved in and Brittany gets its name from the Britons who have moved in. And this is in the 5th and 6th century. It's probably um, a, a continuous movement or a, a flow, an ebb and flow movement. Um, but it looks as though um, from the, the, the number of place names and the density of these place names that it must have been quite a considerable population move. And it may well be that Brittany itself by this stage was fairly depopulated by for, as the result of all the peasant rebellions and that were going on um so so quite a big population transfer possibly and as you say attested historically and in place name evidence is it attested archaeologically can you uh, yeah uh, to some extent yes um you, you can begin to see um uh, a new new type of settlement in in one of the sites I excavated in in Brittany a place called Leode which is um, a, a Roman fortification uh, on um, near Lannion on, on the sea on, the, on, an, on an estuary. Um, we, we've got evidence of um, metalwork, which uh, is quite similar um, to metalwork used in Britain, horse, horse trappings and so on. Um, and um, people move in and start uh, farming the land and um, uh, setting up their um, uh, lazy beds sort of glorified um, sort of thing you find on modern allotments, you know, um, and um, uh, establishing their communities. They also, of course, the, the other thing that, that there is evidence for is the movement of religious leaders. 
the so-called saints who move in, uh, but uh, the religious leaders of the communities who often give their names um, to, to the locations. And these we can trace, and, and there are story, uh, stories of the saints' lives, trace them coming from Wales and Ireland and through southwest Britain. So quite often you get a plus name, meaning the people, and then you get a saint's name, uh, linking the two. So um, there's a lot of evidence converges on that. And you've got a really good bit in the book about those saints and, and, and what that tells us. Um, you, you mentioned mm-hmm. Celts earlier. Perhaps we could just dwell on that <laughs> phrase for a second because it's a, it's a bit of a difficult phrase to grapple with. What does, what does, that, what does that mean, Celtic, Celts? And does it mean something, do you think, uh, different to an archaeologist as it does to a historian? It's it's becoming a very difficult phrase to use, a word to use now, because um, so much work is being done on this. Um, linguists, archaeologists, and uh, ancient DNA is all beginning to contribute to a, a revolution in our understanding. But um, to, to talk simply about it, um, start with um, Caesar says that Gaul is divided, in that famous phrase, Gaul is divided into three parts. Um, there are the, the Belgae in the north, there are the um, uh, Aquitaini in the southwest, and in the whole of the centre, which includes Armorica, of course, um, there are the uh, Gauls, but they call themselves Celts. And Caesar actually says that they call themselves Celts. So by the time Caesar uh, is there, uh, the whole of the west, uh, central part of France, including um, Armorica, is uh, essentially Celtic, and, and that's the word they use for themselves. Um, go back a couple of hundred years, uh, 300 years, when um, the Greek uh, Pythias was sailing around um, Armorica and sailing around Britain. He talks about Armorica as Celtici, and that's sort of 320 BC. So certainly we can say, um, no doubt, by three, back to 300s, um, they were calling themselves Celts. Um, now, <clears throat> The old idea of Celts um, originating in Central Europe and moving west and, and fighting their way and drinking their way and raping their way into into the west and into Britain um, is basically rubbish. Um, uh, but uh, what actually happened is much more difficult to say. Some of us, um, uh, not not everyone, but some of us think that um, the the Celtic language really developed into its recognisable form as part of this Atlantic, um, Bronze Age Atlantic culture, when people were so in contact with each other, they're exchanging technological ideas, religious ideas, cosmological ideas, and that was when the Celtic language started. So we could say that um, the people in, in the Armorican Peninsula called themselves Celts long before the Romans got there, and they were speaking a language which we call Celtic. Okay, so it's it's reasonable to speak of the Celts as a people in Brittany and indeed in Western Britain during this period and, and to think that they m- would have called themselves by that name as well. Uh, yes, I think uh, it is reasonable to think that they, they recognised uh, uh, some sort of ethnic overarching identity. They, they of course, individual tribes and um, fighting each other, but um, some ethnic identity. And they, sim- they did speak the same language as well, or, or versions of the same language, which we call Celtic. Okay, good. Well, that's 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 helpful to clarify that, and uh, it, it comes laden with different meanings now. And perhaps we'll we'll come on to that uh, at the at the end of this conversation. So, um, moving on again a bit, just 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 charging forwards. Um, 
we move into the Viking period or the Viking Age when we see uh, incursions from Scandinavia, raiders and traders uh, across the uh, across the seaboard of both Britain and Brittany. And this is from the uh, 8th century onwards, I guess. Is it the same story on both sides? Do, does Brittany suffer the same sort of uh, Viking attacks that Britain does? Yeah, it's, it's very much the same story, um, but with, with a little a, a nuance to it. Um, the the Bretons at this stage, as you say, we're talking about 8th, 9th, 10th centuries. The Bretons at this stage, their main enemy were the French, the Franks. And they were fighting the Franks um, more or less consistently uh, throughout this period. Um, when the Vikings move in, um, sometimes the Bretons fight uh, the Vikings and the French. Sometimes the Vikings join up with the Bretons and they fight the French. So um, the, the Vikings are a third force that can be used by either the Franks or, or the Bretons. But um, essentially, um, a, a, a lot of Vikings move in. Uh, they like estuaries. And some Vikings move into the Seine estuary. We'll come back to them in a minute. Another lot move into the Loire estuary, which um, the main town, the Roman town of Nantes was there. And so Nantes features large in this. And from the Loire estuary, um, they they raid into Britain, Brittany. Um, <clears throat> other lots are raiding from, um, from Frisia and from the Seine estuary, are raiding all around the coast of Brittany as well. So you've got this whole series of, of raid after raid after raid. Um, <clears throat> and um, then um, uh, what, what happens is um, a load of um, Vikings under a man called Rollo, uh, who are trying to settle in the Seine Valley, are actually given land by the uh, French and said, okay, look, the easiest way to stop more raids getting upriver to Paris is to give you the land downriver from Paris and you keep the rest of the Vikings off. So Rollo uh, sort of settles there and um, <clears throat> he, he becomes, uh, it, 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 they become the Normans, essentially. That, that is Normandy um, and uh, their, their descendants are, are the Normans. But from, from that area, um, more raiders start uh, attacking Brittany. So you've got this constant flood of Viking raiders um, coming. Um, and what, what happens is the um, some of the Breton elite that shows the, these close connections with Britain, they flee to Saxon Britain. Uh, and Ethelstan, King Ethelstan in, in Britain, gives them uh, you know, land uh, and, and looks after them. So you've got these Breton refugees in Britain. And uh, there's a famous one, Alan uh, Twisted Beard, Barbatot, Alain Barbatot, um, who um, is uh, an elite Breton um, in the court of Ethelstan. Uh, and he's constantly in touch with his spies, his Christian spies, who are in the monasteries. And they say, well, now is the time to come and free Brittany. And uh, so he, he and, and some uh, English troops um, land at Dol, which is not far from Saint-Malo, and then do this great sweep through Brittany, uh, beating off the Vikings everywhere they go. And, and the, 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 the slight difference between Britain and, and Brittany is the Vikings... Uh, in Britain, the Vikings are really land-grabbing towards the end and settling. 
Uh, in Brittany, it's not like that, except in the Loire estuary. Uh, they're much more raiders and uh, sort of living off the land. So it's easy to, to uh, round them up and beat them up. So in the um, 930s, um, uh, Alain uh, lands and, and moves. He, he, it's, it's an interesting move. He lands in Dol, goes along the north coast, and then right through the centre of Brittany down to the south, beating off Saxons wherever he meets them, and then he homes in on Nantes, which is their centre, and, and, and kicks them out of Nantes, and then chases the remnant back up north and then destroys them. And this is the, the, the great, this is the end of, of, of the Vikings, and it's all due to this local hero, uh, really, with British support, English support, um, getting rid of them. And so this this was in Athelstan's reign. This this will be in the tenth century, early early half tenth century. Yeah, Alain moves back into Brittany in nine three six, and by nine three nine, just three years, he he's sort of got rid of the Vikings uh, from from Brittany. So by by the middle of the tenth century, um, Brittany is is free again. And, and and he was doing that with with English support, um, with some English support, yes. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I mean, Athelstan was sort of famous for trying to uh, build up his uh, the whole kingdom of England. You know, famous for calling himself the, the king of the English. Did he have designs yes. on Brittany? Do, do, is that uh... Uh, no? I, I don't think so. I think uh, not not at this stage. Um, I, I think it, it is really these familial relationships which um, go back generation after generation after generation, and they were just playing on on the. Those, those relationships and they, they continue uh, right the way through the uh, you know centuries on from from the point where we are at the moment in the 10th century mm. um, the British were often coming across to help support the the, the, the Bretons against the French and and uh, it sounds like uh, by this point Brittany has got a, a clear regional identity versus the, the Frankish that you talked about and, and I guess also the the anglo-saxon uh, in England. Uh, yes, yeah, very distinct identity, um, and it's been fighting um, from about um, uh, seven seven fifties um, to about eight thirty. So that's just 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 before the Vikings. Um, there are a whole series of campaigns from the Franks of the Carolingian Empire into Brittany, trying to conquer Brittany and failing because the Bretons use guerrilla tactics. Um, and there were seven of these campaigns, and it was during that time that really the Breton identity uh, was was forged. That um, uh, it, the easiest way to forge an identity is to have an enemy, and the the Franks, the Carolingians, were the enemy. So you could you know really create your sense of, of of identity and your sense of unity by, by fighting them constantly. And all your aggressive instincts could be geared not against your neighbours, um, whose land you wanted, but against that lot outside, the outsiders. So it's very much a them and us. Uh, so, so that uh, by the time the Vikings come, um, this, this forging of Breton identity was pretty well complete. Now you mind, reminded us a second ago of uh, of the Viking origins of Normandy, and Normandy mm. abuts Brittany. It's 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 directly <laughs> to the east of it, uh, and of course the Normans famously invaded England in 1066. Um, there were, I believe, quite a few Bretons in the Norman invasion fleet. Um, so are we seeing a Breton influxion, uh, influx back into Britain, into England, after the conquest in the second half of the 11th century? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly that. The, the, the Norman invasion was uh, an opportunity for angry young men to, to really make their fortunes. Um, so that um, within the, the... What William did was to create a focus for um, would-be warriors from the whole of northern France to come together under his leadership. And some of them were Bretons. And in fact, um, when the Doomsday was written um, in uh, the end of the 11th century, um, one-fifth of the land of Britain was owned by Bretons. Um, and some of those were Bretons who went with, with the Normans. Um, there were really three clusters of Bretons in, in Britain. There, there was um, the sort of old money cluster, as it were. These were the Bretons who had gone across before the Norman invasion, like, like the people who went uh, and um, fled from the Vikings and were given land by the English kings. Um, and they, <clears throat> they really had land in East Anglia, uh, in Norfolk and Suffolk. Um, they were there already. Um, and there were others, uh, like uh, Alain Leroux, uh, who was um, a Breton who fought at the Battle of Hastings, and he was given land in Yorkshire, the, the, the Richmond estates in Yorkshire, and um, uh, he had bigger estates. Um, the, the Bretons already there in East Anglia were given additional land by the Normans. There was another cluster of um, Bretons down in the southwest, in Devon, Cornwall, uh, uh, South Wales, that sort of area. So we've got these three big clusters of Bretons. Uh, these are Breton lords, but they, had, they would have had their entourage with them. And uh, uh, once they were there, of course, the mothers, brothers, cousins and sisters all moved in. Uh, so um, you, you got a, a sort of in, an influx of people from Brittany into Britain and um, as joining the land-holding aristocracy. And the fascinating thing is that um, they, they then, um, the, the, um, the lot in East Anglia uh, fell out with the king uh, and their land was uh, apportioned to the others. Um, and the other two groups, the, the ones in Yorkshire and the ones in the southwest, came from rival groups in Brittany. So they were at daggers drawn with each other. So when Britain went into a civil war, uh, the Stephen and Matilda civil war, one group sided with Stephen, one group sided with Matilda. So um, these were two Breton royal, um, royal families um, fighting out their battles in, in Britain uh, in, in a British political context. Um, and I should have said, uh, just before the Norman Congress, the Bayer Tapestry shows the Normans uh, invading Brittany and, uh, and William the Conqueror leading, uh, leading a, a force into Brittany. So clearly there were daggers drawn there. Um, at what point, uh, and Normandy eventually becomes part of France after a, a lot, quite a long story, which we can't go into, uh, and so does Brittany. At what point does Brittany become more French than, than, it, is, than, than it was then? Right. Well, um, I... As you say, um, Brittany be, um, becomes um, is part of the Angevin Empire, the the empire that is essentially ruled by um, Henry the Second, that that um, which is the whole of Western France and the whole of the British Isles, really, and Brittany is part of that. Um, and uh, in many ways, that. British-held territory keeps Brittany separate from France, um, and the Breton identity continues uh, to develop. 
And uh, throughout the Middle Ages, you get wars of succession and civil wars in Brittany and so on. Um, and, um, but uh, there is still this antagonism to France. And it goes on and on and on. And you gradually find um, they're developing a sort of pro-French party and an anti-French party in Brittany. And the whole thing really comes to uh, a conclusion in, um, with the death of um, Fran Duke Francois in Brittany. Duke Francois uh, dies in 1488. And he has his successor, is his 11-year-old uh, daughter, Anne, Anne, Duchess of Brittany. Only, only 11. Uh, and that the French see as the wonderful opportunity uh, the uh, uncertainty of an 11-year-old taking over, a wonderful opportunity to move in and invade Brittany. Um, they do. And uh, the, the British send an army, 6,000 troops, uh, to support the Brit Bretons against the French. But the pro-French party in Brittany decide that Anne is uh, to be their, the, the centre person. And they, they are quite powerful, and they eventually marry Anne to Charles, King of France. Uh, and when Charles, King of France, dies, uh, she's married to the next King of France, Louis. So um, it's a smart political move. You marry your Breton Duchess to the King of France, and that virtually is, puts a stop for a while. Uh, to the antagonism between them. And then in the, the great um, edict, which was passed in 1532, um, Brittany becomes part of France. Uh, Anne's dead by now, uh, but um, Brittany is, is part of France. And it's quite a good deal for the Bretons because what, what the French do is to promise uh, a degree of autonomy for Brittany, they can have. They've got their own general assembly. They've got their own parliament. They can appoint their own bishops. Um, they're, uh, they they um, they cannot be called up to fight in foreign wars uh, outside Brittany, uh, and um, they can only be taxed if their own parliament uh, or general assembly agree to the taxation. So the deal is a very, very good one, and it does bring to an end this this period of continuous strife throughout the, the medieval period. And from then on, uh, Brittany begins to flourish um, economically. It really takes off. Um, but, but, of course, the story... The French make one one set of promises in 1532, and in the successive years they break them one after another, one after another, and that causes more Breton discontent. Okay, so we got to 1532. Um, there's a, clearly another 500 years of all sorts of interesting things are going on, but I think that, that will be a podcast part deux, um, which uh, which we can't do. There's just a couple more points I just wanted to, to chat to you about before we finish, if you've got time. Um, one is uh, taking us back into the medieval period and and, and uh, tackling Arthuriana because um, mm. it's very it's mm. very interesting. If you go uh, travel around yeah. Brittany, you see a lot of evidence of Arthurian stories. Um, I've, I've done it myself, and um, particularly a place like the uh, Pam. Forest near Rennes. It's an amazing, lovely forest, and it's kind of got an Arthurian centre in it, in the middle of it, with all sorts of um, uh, uh, sort of mystical stuff going on there. What's what's going on? Why is why is uh, Brittany part of the Arthurian mythology? Yeah, it, it, it's a very very interesting question. This, I mean, to to uh, try, try and sort of tease out the, the crucial bits, um, the Arthurian story as we know it 
um, is uh, really given to us. The main story is given to us by Geoffrey of Monmouth, who writes the history of the kings of England, um, published about 1135. Um, he lived not far from here, just down the road at Osney, uh, just outside Oxford. And um, he, he wrote this history of the kings of England. What he didn't know, he made up, basically. Um, and within it is the, the germ of the Arthurian legend. Arthur um, is a British nobleman. Um, when the Saxons come, he fights against the Saxons. Um, he's successful. Uh, he decides to conquer Europe um, while he's away. Uh, there's rebellion in Britain. He returns, gets a battle in, uh, injury, uh, and goes off to Avalon, where he may or may not die. You know, it's uh, so that's the ger the germ of the the story told by Geoffrey. Now, um, there is also a parallel tradition in Brittany, um, which uh, has Arthur and a, a lot of things that we don't find in Geoffrey's story. Um, Excalibur, for example. Um, comes from the Breton legend. The Round Table comes from the Breton legends, and so do some of the characters. Um, so how do these relate? Well, I suppose the simplest explanation may not be the right one, but the simplest explanation is that when the British moved and went to um, settle in Brittany in the 5th and 6th century, this was the time when notionally Arthur was fighting the Saxons in Britain. They took with them um, stories of, of their hero into Brittany so that the, the, the um, Arthurian legend got into Brittany uh, as the result of the British uh, and there uh, became embroidered with local stories of local heroes uh, who coalesced with the story of Arthur. So that's one, one possibility. That, um, and in that way, they got into the, um, the, the troubadour tradition, the French troubadour tradition, the uh, jongleurs who sang songs, the conteurs who told stories in the courts. And these were stories about great Arthur and all the people associated with him. And, and they sort of pervaded uh, Western European society and, and then got back in, 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 into Britain. So th that would be the simplest interpretation. I mean, there are others um, that that might see um, Arthur as one of these um, late Roman soldiers who went across and fought in Brittany and came back to Britain. And some people have suggested that. Um, but um, I, I think it it is one tradition uh, that, that certainly uh, becomes much, much, much richer as a result of what the Bretons have got to add to it than what the British gave it. Uh, thank you. I mean, it's a very complicated business, this Arthurian mm. story. And the listeners might be, I should remind you that uh, we've got a podcast in our archive, uh, an interview of uh, Professor Ronald Hutton talking uh, about ah. that uh, a little while ago. And I should mention that Ronald Hutton, who's an eminent historian, uh, he's quoted on the back of your book. Uh, he says that you are one of the greatest, uh, one of our greatest living archaeologists. So uh, so that's a nice phrase. Now, look, um, just last thing, um, taking mm. us back to the Celtic story mm. again, uh, a Celtic coda to finish, if we can. 
Britain. So yeah. Brittany today um, would be seen by many people as part of kind of the pan-Celtic world, which would be Brittany, Cornwall, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, I guess. And there's all sorts of cultural events that, that sort of happen across that uh, across that sphere. Um, what what does that what does that mean? What how is that part of this tradition? And is it is it completely separate uh, idea of Celticness to what might have been an original idea of Celticness? Um, I, I think the, the, the Bretons always felt close to, to Britain. I mean, for all the reasons we've talked about, very very close contacts all the time, and um, they were always the other, and the, they were fighting the French. So their, their identity became very, very important, their, their Celtic roots. And this first comes out by, uh, in a book written by a man called Paul-Yves uh, Paul Pezeron, who was a, a Breton priest. And he published a book in um, 1703 um, called uh, about the, the, the Celts and, and, and their language and so on. And um, he, he argued that the um, the Celts started somewhere in in the east of of Europe, and they moved gradually west, and then they were wiped out in some parts. And the, the true Celts survived in Brittany. That's what he was arguing. And then the, these ideas were taken up by the, the great English scholar Edward Fluid, who um, wrote uh, the um, uh, Archaeologica Britannica in uh, 1706, and uh, it was he who said, look, all these languages, Breton and Irish and Gaelic and, and Welsh and Cornish, are all one same language group, and I'm going to call it Celtic. Um, and he liked what Pezeron was saying, and, and it was he who really formed this idea of a Celtic West, that um, in the West, um, the, the language and the culture of, of the these Celtic people um, survived uh, against um, Romans and uh, Germans and Saxons and everyone else coming in. Um, you, he would say that because he was a Welshman himself and uh, he was being anti-English at this stage. Um, so <clears throat> there, there is the germ of the story. Now, um, it gets muddled because uh, oh, Napoleon uh, likes Celts very much, uh, and he likes to see Celts as the ancestor of the Gaul ancestors of the Gauls, and the Bretons say, "Well, yeah, okay, but um, you lot of Gauls are all overlaid by Franks and goodness knows what um, people coming in from across the frontiers. We're the true Celts." And um, when Napoleon begins to be um, very harsh, and 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 his successes very harsh to try and integrate Brittany totally into uh, France. So the idea of um, Celtic Bretonness uh, begins to, to develop. So it's got real roots in, in reality and in scholarship. And, and I think the, the, perhaps the key point is um, a man, a Breton nobleman called Elfsat de la Villemarque, who in 1867 uh, decided to set up a great inter-Celtic conference in Sambriu, which is on the north coast of Brittany. And he invited his brothers and his cousins and his compatriots from the other Celtic countries in Wales and Cornwall and in Ireland to this great Celtic conference. And it was a political move uh, and an intellectual move as well, really, um, to cement the Celticness of the West 
um, to give Britain, uh, Brittany its exceptional, exceptional nature in, in contrast to France. And then that goes on and develops and develops and develops. That was Professor Sir Barry Cunliffe. His book, Britons and Britons, The Fight for Identity, is out now, published by OUP. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us on Friday when Franny Moyle will be speaking about the Tudor court painter Hans Holbein. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.